Support for this podcast comes from Kinney Drugs, celebrating 120 years of providing medications, advice, and quality healthcare products and services. Kinney pharmacists administer all CDC-recommended vaccines to those age 18 and older, including flu, HPV, Tdap, MMR, chickenpox, and hepatitis A and B. They also administer vaccines indicated for older adults, including shingles for age 50+, RSV for age 60+, and pneumonia for age 65+. Employee-owned and locally committed since 1903. Learn more at kinneydrugs.com. All Americans both understand that we've got a problem and the system is not serving us. Uh, We go in different directions, but we all understand that. That is a common point. And if you can cut out the labels, the left, the right, you can focus on the job that our electors are supposed to be doing on our behalf, you get agreement. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Rick Hubbard left his home in South Burlington in October 2022. He was driving a large RV en route to Los Angeles, where he began walking across the country. The 81-year-old retired attorney says he is walking to fix our democracy. One year later, Hubbard is still walking. Rick Hubbard was co-founder and director of the Vermont Chapter of Common Cause, which advocates for voting rights and government accountability. He was inspired to walk for democracy by Doris Haddock, better known as Granny D, an 88-year-old New Hampshire activist who walked across the country in 1999 and 2000 in support of campaign finance reform. Hubbard joined Granny D for a week as she walked across Kentucky, stopping at Senator Mitch McConnell's office to demand that he support campaign finance reform. Hubbard has had to make unexpected detours along his journey. Last December, he had to rush home to Vermont when his life partner of three decades, Sally Howe, was diagnosed with aggressive cancer. Howe died in April. Hubbard wrote that he had to turn his attention from fixing democracy to fix my broken heart. In August, Hubbard resumed his cross-country walking journey. He wrote in a blog post, quote, Some days may be more putting one foot in front of the other, rather than a crusade to save our democracy. Hubbard walks about 10 miles per day, five days per week. He carries an American flag on his back that flutters above his head. He engages volunteers and community members along his route. He is pressing for passage of voting rights legislation and celebrating state and local activists along the way. I began by asking Hubbard where he is on his journey and what he's doing. I am in Manitou Springs, which is right next to Colorado Springs in Colorado, not very far from Pikes Peak. And you hiked up part of or most of Pikes Peak yesterday, I believe. Uh, It was a couple days ago with an old friend, two 81-year-olds, just trying to see if we can get up to the 10,200-foot level and stay overnight and then get down. That's only halfway up the mountain, though. And did you make it halfway? Oh, yeah. No problems. Just slower than the old days. <laughs> so so this sounds a bit like a busman's holiday where um, the guy walking across the country takes a day off to walk up uh, one of the highest peaks in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, don't you want to get off your feet on your day off? 
Well, there's actually, I was able to include this mileage as part of the walk because Colorado doesn't let me walk the normal route that Google Maps plotted me across the states uh, in Colorado. It because it has me heavily on the interstate and I walk against traffic on the left hand side. And uh, that way you've got an eight, 10 foot median or rather side, you know, uh, sideline to be walking on. You're watching the oncoming cars and you can engage in eye contact and wave and that I carry a flag. And so uh, it attracts attention. So it makes sense where it's safe to uh, go where you've got more people going by. But it is legal to do that in California, Nevada, and New Mexico, but not in Colorado or Arizona. Wait, so it's not legal to, to walk alongside the road in Colorado? The, inter the interstate. The, oh, interstate, the interstate. Where you don't only the be interstate. Anyway. So what I have to do is if I have 50 miles to walk between Pueblo and Colorado Springs, I have to find some other way to walk the 50 miles. If there's a side road that parallels it, that works fine. In this last case, there wasn't. So I had to back up and uh, cut the corner from somewhere I'd already walked on uh, so-called Route 115. And uh, that was about 35 of the 50. So I figured I could count the 13 and change miles up and down Pikes Peak as part of the remaining 50. <laughs> so that's that had some something to do with why we did it. <laughs> and who is setting these quotas of 50 miles or whatever that you're kind of uh, tallying uh, up against? Uh, it's all me. Uh, it's the ideal target is 10 miles a day, five days a week, two days of slop to adjust. I could do any way I want over those seven days to get 50 miles. And the route across the country is plotted at 50 miles a week. And so today, for example, or whenever, I don't know if you're walking today or tomorrow, um, where will you go? What what will your day be like? Uh, it'll be tomorrow because there's an event in Colorado Springs this afternoon that I'm on tap for. Uh, it's organized by local activists and it'll be at a museum outside in a gazebo for a part of it and then walking in town with flags and banners maybe 10 minutes 15 minutes to a restaurant where we're going to have a q a and discussion about ways to fix things and who uh, are the activists that you're arranging with along the way uh it really varies it's hugely different sometimes common causes involved sometimes represent us is involved individual indivisible is involved uh sometimes some of the independent groups that are trying to improve democracy like the forward party want to help out uh it, public citizens individual people show up sometimes you know it really varies and Therefore, I have to be very flexible. <laughs> you and never know. <laughs> this 10 mile a day that you're trying to log, um, has that been challenging to meet that goal? 
when you're 81, of course, when you walk 10 miles a day at the end of it, I'm tired. <laughs> yes, uh, but I can do it. Um, you know, the first, I don't know, seven, eight, they flow pretty easily. And then I begin to notice it a little bit. It's not like the old days, David. <laughs> you know about the old days. We're both getting older, even though you're 20 <laughs> years or so younger than I am. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's um, begin at the beginning. When did you get the idea to walk across America to raise you know, awareness about issues well, you were concerned about? It isn't original with me. Have you heard of Granny D? I have. Well, it all started with Granny D, and it all started at Christmas in, must have been 1998, in southwestern Connecticut with my 31-year life partner, Sally, and we were down there for Christmas dinner at Aunt Rosie's. And uh, Sally has a sister living down there who had a daughter who married. And I am talking with the husband of that daughter uh, before we went in for dinner and we're having a glass of wine. And I don't know how we got on the topic. His name uh, was Haddock. And uh, he turned out to be Granny D's grandson. And uh, he said to me, Rick, I don't know how it came up. Our family's got a huge problem. We got this crazy grandmother who's got this harebrained idea that she's going to walk across the whole damn country and we can't talk her out of it. Uh, and he went on to say that they'd thrown every barrier they could, you know, prove that you can walk 10 miles and she'd go out and walk multiple days, 10. Prove that you can camp out if you have to. She would do that and come back. Um, she jumped over every hurdle. And so her as I was talking to him, uh, his dad, her son, was actually driving her out to California to start within six days at the Rose Bowl, which is also where I started. Remind us what Granny D's issue was. Why was she walking? Okay. Um, it was for the same issue I am, but narrower. It was for campaign finance reform, the money in politics. And this was 1998 to 2000. Uh, and it did result in uh, the McCain-Feingold bill getting passed way back. Uh, the Supreme Court's pretty well got it up lately. Uh, but uh, that was nowhere near broad enough and comprehensive enough to actually fix anything. It what what it, did McCain-Feingold do? It cut out corporate contributions to political campaigns. And if you looked at the amount of money that came in in 2000 and said what percentage of that came from corporations, it removed about 17%, 18%, something like that, of the total money in the process. And that did not change much. But that was the attempt. So you joined Granny D on part of her walk. Uh, just for a week down in Ken Kentucky, she gave a memorable speech in front of Mitch McConnell's office. About? Uh, about money and politics. Uh, if you go way back to 
don't hold me exactly to this, but roughly 1997 or 8, we had the last major debate about financing our political system and whether it was working for citizens. And John McCain raised it in the U.S. Senate. And he got huge pushback from uh, McConnell. McCain said, the money is corrupting all of us. It, we all know it. And McConnell said, now, wait a minute, McCain, name names. If you're going to name names, if people are, if we're corrupt, who amongst us is corrupt? And McCain refused because of the decorum of the Senate. You're not supposed to run down your fellow senators. Uh, so Granny showed up and uh, in front of McConnell's office in Louisville and there were perhaps a hundred people there and there were news cameras rolling. And she said in so many words, Senator McConnell, I hear you have been searching, searching, searching the dark corners of the Senate like Diogenes with his lantern looking for that senator or senators who might be corrupt. I have come to help. And she went on to say that, uh, could it be that the senator you're looking for is, and I'm being arbitrary here, but the senator who took $350,000 from the coal mining association and in turn did something that helped the association, but not the miners and the people. Could it be, and she went on for two or three more examples, for I have found that person, Senator McCain, and it is, I'm sorry, Senator McConnell, and it is you. <laughs> uh, so she brought it, uh, it was, right it was to his front door. To tell right me, to what, what did you kind of, uh, what did Granny D, what did you come away from that? That was 25 years ago that you joined her for a week. Uh, what okay. little spark did it set off for you? Well, it goes back a little further than that. I went to uh, business school over at Tuck at Dartmouth. That was two years post-university. And then I paired it with law and was in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. Uh, when I finished and was on my way out of town, I had a pretty good background to go to the city, but I wanted to have a more balanced life. So I, like you, came back to Vermont. And I've never regretted that, although I probably didn't earn as much money as I could have or would have. Uh, so I stopped by Common Cause at the time, relatively newly formed, and said, hey, I'm going to Vermont. Is there anything I can do to help? And they said, we don't. We have board mem a board member from Vermont, Susan Lu Paris Lewis, and we have members at large, but we have no state organization. Would you get in touch with her and see if you and others can gin something up, which we did. That eventually led me in the early 80s to being on the National Common Cause Board for half a dozen years uh, with all kinds of uh, well-known national folks, plus some that came through the state route like me. Uh, fast forward, and I got involved in various ways uh, with politics, just trying to understand what's going on and helping. I became a little disillusioned when I realized the correlation between party platforms and what actually happened if you were elected didn't, didn't line up very well. Uh, so... I kept my hand in, and then when I retired and had more time, 
uh, I joined Larry Lessig over in New Hampshire. And Larry uh, has done a lot. He's a Harvard professor. He's written books about all this. I don't know anyone in America who is probably better versed in the intricacies, in, in, sorry, intricacies and details of our political system, its financing, its problems, and ways to fix it. Uh, so I have been involved in many different ways. And then, uh, unfortunately, on my watch, despite the efforts of literally probably a few hundred organizations, uh, I have to say that we have not made progress. We have gone badly backwards and downhill as a country, and it's hurting us badly. In, in regards bothers. specifically to campaign finance reform to money in politics. Oh, that's one. But no, uh, focusing but on what our elected representatives are supposed to be doing when they take the oath to the Constitution and the preamble, which lays out their job in a very general sense. Well, let's um, back up a little to ask the obvious question that we didn't ask at the beginning. Why are you walking across America? Uh, it helps to focus attention uh, on the issue. It helps to, to the extent that it gets publicity, and it does get publicity uh, locally at the moment more than nationally. Uh, but it's pretty well covered as I go through, you know, city and state. Uh, but it's to involve other people to uh, to help get Americans. Uh, thinking about how important it is for us to have our system of a republic with representative democracy, where we have people, we elect people to represent our interests and make decisions systematically in each and every issue, healthcare, education, defense, and on and on and on. Uh, in ways that are the most efficient, sensible, economically, uh, sensible and uh, that serve not a few, but serve the bulk of all 330 million of us. It strikes me that the title or the name of your walk, Walking to Fix Democracy, has a, an assumption built in, which is that we have a democracy. And America was not a built on a democracy in the sense of being one person, one vote, uh, popular vote winners win. We all know that we have this electoral college that was de of devised essentially to preference white male landowners. And we've seen this system kind of work as intended over the last decades where we've had at least two presidents, George Bush in 2000 and Donald Trump in 2016, assume the presidency after having lost the popular vote. So what is, when you talk about fixing democracy, the problem is it isn't a democracy. That's, that's very fair. And, uh, you know, I get asked that question a lot. Do, we don't have a democracy. And of course we don't. We have a republic and we elect democratically our representatives to act on our behalf. But 
if you said that to most Americans uh, and asked how they relate to that versus what they would say, and they would say, well, we have a democracy, even though technically even they probably know that isn't true. You'll notice that President Biden says the same thing. Uh, he knows it isn't a democracy, but he talks about our democracy nowadays. I want you to elaborate on that republic versus democracy. What is the distinction there? Well, in a democracy, you and I would be called on equally to all decide on each and every decision that affects all of us. Uh, that's rather impractical. I mean, I follow policy pretty closely, and I wouldn't dare say that I would be competent to off the cuff make those kind of decisions. It takes a lot of knowledge, a lot of background, a lot of expertise to rationally think through the best approach to say how to provide health care to all Americans, good quality health care, at the least total system-wide cost in a manner that is sustainable over time, economically and socially. We don't come even close to that goal, which is what would logically fall out of the oath that our representatives took to the Constitution when they said, we, we the people set up our Constitution to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. Well, we're not doing very well on that one right now. Uh, provide for the common defense promote the general welfare. That's where healthcare, education, uh, all, all those things come in. And, uh, you know, we expect them to be really uh, analytical, sensible, and to examine the system that for healthcare will do the best job of most efficiently, most healthcare for the least cost, provide that to all Americans. Uh, that isn't what's happening. And it's driving our country in the direction it's going. You're having this walk to fix democracy. Others, including President Biden, but others are are talking about defending democracy itself. We don't agree as a country that democracy is necessarily what we want. It seems that, for example, uh, you know, former President Trump doesn't agree that if you lose an election, um, as he did, that you should step aside, that you know he subscribes to more of the authoritarian view, which is he is the leader, he alone will fix it. He will decide which votes, which outcomes he agrees with. And we have whole parts of the country, perhaps you're walking through them, where voter suppression and gerrymandering are in distinctly intended to disenfranchise people, to keep people from exercising their popular will, their democratic voice. So as you go around the country talking about democracy, do people even know what you're talking about? Do they even agree on what that democracy thing is? Uh, David, the best way I can answer it is this. If I, as neutrally as I can, ask people, how well do you think? that our elected congressional representatives for Congress over the past several decades are doing in making decisions on issues that affect us all that serve our public good. Want to guess the answer? All right. So the question is how many question, people? 
Yeah. Many people, is our political system doing what it's supposed to, to, to elect representatives to serve our public good? I would say that 10% of people believe that that's happening. Uh, I have not met, and no exception, I have not met a single person, Dave. We all know. We all acknowledge it. It is common knowledge. People almost laugh uh, at times. It's very sad. Uh, there isn't any question that Americans, whether they are ideologically left, right, or whatever, uh, we all have and understand that same starting point. It motivates us, and we can be directed in many different directions on what to do from there, but we all know. Uh, and But there, if you ask the following question right after it, you will get an equal percentage of people to say, you know, if I say, how, how likely is it or, that we're going to be able to fix it? You get almost universal, you know, uh, agreement that this is so hard that we're, we don't either don't think it's going to be fixed or it's, you know, we're not sure if it's going to be able to be fixed because rational approaches are not what's being followed in the moment in our political system and not just in the moment. Uh, on issue after issue, we are suboptimizing on behalf of American people and it's hurting our country badly. And which are the key issues that you think are in most in need of repair and that you're trying to direct people's attention to as you walk and talk? Okay. Let me give you three examples and let me uh, relate them to that oath to the Constitution in the preamble whose language I went through before. Uh, so the first one is capitalism and our economy. If we are going to have Congress adopt, and we clearly have, the system economically of capitalism to power our economy, capitalism has some nasty side effects. It is ruthlessly efficient at making money for somebody. Uh, but if left unbalanced, it will logically over time funnel the bulk of those winnings, extra winnings from its efficiency ever upwards to an ever smaller number of ever richer people at the expense of a little bit out of all the rest of us in all kinds of different ways we could cover. The other nasty side effect is that it will drive wages as low as it will go, they will go, as long as people will show up for work. And the problem with that is that on my watch, we've come from the point where it was never perfect, of course, but you could have one uh, person out of a couple that are, you know, partnered, and they could work and the other could take care of the home front. And then that was in the 50s and 60s. There was a bigger chunk of America that could live like that. Then in the 80s, it became you needed two people working. And we didn't have the support systems of health care or child care, which made it really hard for people to work. And now in the, in the days that we're in now, we have driven those costs so those wages in relation to the cost of living so low that we now have of all 161 million people working in America, a little over the studies vary, I'll use a range, 
a little over 40% on the low side up to a little over 62% on the high side that work and do not have a penny in the bank for emergencies. They are a paycheck away from disaster. And that is horribly affecting our country. It's responsible for all the logical effects from that that you and I could probably list. Uh, is that, you know, isn't it the job not of capitalism to balance that equation? That its job is to make money. But the job of our elected representatives, if we're going to have capitalism, is to balance it enough from its worst side effects so that it serves us broadly as a people, not just narrowly as a people. And clearly the inequality figures show the opposite. Tell me when you began your current walk. I began it October 1st of 2022. And I walked in the first two and a half months across California, Nevada, and most of Arizona. And then something unexpected happened. Uh, the My 31-year life partner, Sally, uh, was going to join me in Phoenix. And with two days notice, there was an event on a Sunday. She was going to fly in on a Monday. The volunteer with me was leaving and she was going to sub for two, two weeks. I was really looking forward to that. Uh, and she called with two days notice and said, Rick, the cancer, my breast cancer has gotten around the first treatment that has been holding it in check beautifully. We were climbing mountains in August before I left uh, for two and a half years. And I'm in trouble and we got to do more tests. Took about three weeks to get the results of those tests and second opinions. And it became clear to me she was in deep doo-doo. And so I immediately suspended the walk this really cool looking support RV that's all wrapped with people, you know, Americans of all ages and stripes and colors, carrying signs and flags and wrap, sat in a secure place in that 110 degree Phoenix sun for a good chunk of the next seven months. And I had hot footed it back in the tow car to Vermont to take care of Sally and be her caregiver. And it did not end well. She died in April. So I'm after so sorry. We... And I knew Sally. I played in uh, orchestras with her over the years. That's I went right. into her cross country skiing. And um, she was the picture of health and life and vivaciousness. And um, truly, uh, you know, my condolences on your loss. I unfortunately had a really good partner and it's hard. It's very hard. So I don't have answers to life after Sally for me, but I figured after another month or two, after we'd celebrated her life uh, as well as I could uh, that, okay, let me go out and resume the walk and think about things that are much bigger and broader and more important than what's going to happen to Rick in the future. Uh, and Did you so, consider oh, yeah. at that point that you might just end this project of yours? No, uh, no, but it's difficult. Uh, you know, I screwed up the whole schedule, uh, a, lot, a whole lot of things. When I changed, I had originally planned to go through the winter, but down much further south. And then I'd be coming up north to Denver and Fort Collins in March, April, and heading across the plains. I'd be through Michigan, uh, or Wisconsin, Michigan, and headed back down through Ohio and Pennsylvania in October, November. And I'd arrive in 
just before Christmas in Washington, but nobody's there. So we'd probably take a break outside Washington and then come back and go when everybody comes back in in January and finish it up. Uh, that all changed. So now I'm on a totally different schedule and I'm going to be way too far north to go across the plains and the blizzards in the winter. And I'm going to have to come back to Vermont and take the December through March time and base out of Vermont and then restart in early April and head back out. And but when is I, your hope to reach Washington and what will you do at the end of the walk? Well, uh, it depends on the support from various organizations, but we could go, for example, outside the Department of Health and we could talk about the uh, health care that is being done by CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, that was set up buried deep in Obamacare to come up with new systems that are going to improve health care. They are the people responsible for Medicare Advantage, ACO Reach, that you and I can get moved into against our will with ACO Reach. We have no say about it if I, for example, if Blue Cross cuts a deal. And I know that every one of these programs ends up costing Medicare and us as taxpayers more money per person with the new program than the old program. And I also know that Congress has two studies that have been in front of it for four years that show one by the CBO and one by three healthcare economists that show we can cover everybody in America and the savings when you move to the payer funnel over to the federal side, you're only changing the payment system, uh, are so huge from all of the state health insurance premiums for employees that Vermont and 50 other states don't pay, or 49 other states don't pay. When you move the, uh, the uh, Medicaid part, the state part, over to the Fed part, the, their efficiencies in moving to a single payment system that are so large that the Fed, the savings, you can cover everybody in America and the studies show you can save 500000 or $500 billion a year. Now, now you know, I, coming I, from Vermont, that Governor Shumlin came in on a promise to institute single-payer health care in Vermont. And when he finally had the various studies done and it was time to pull the trigger and implement this for the state, he found that the price tag was just going to be too high in Vermont, or so he said. What is your take on that? Um, it's very difficult state by state to solve this. You have to solve it with everybody because uh, if you have other states that uh, haven't done it, you have to have a totally different payment system. Uh, and uh, you don't get the efficiencies. For example, in other countries, the University of Vermont Healthcare Network budgets and they have to budget just like they budget here and they come up with an amount to keep the doors open the doctors paid everybody's on salary with performance targets we bill out for every band-aid and surgical procedure way more than it costs because you don't get a full payment out of insurance company a versus b versus c and you have to game it in a big computer model uh 
That's nuts. It's hugely inefficient. Other countries cut a deal with the single payer, payer and they can adjust if you have a COVID problem and renegotiate, but they get a check a month. You don't do any of that. Uh, the only people you do it for are the foreigners that are in town. You have to have some way of doing that. There's so much efficiency that we can have that we do not have right now. And it's, and we could cover everybody. It's fair to look at the numbers and analyze the hell out of them. But ask yourself, do you think our representatives, if they're not telling you about these studies, if they're not saying it makes sense for us to get the most health care for the least uh, money and good quality for all Americans, if they're not doing their job uh, or they're not talking about it, are they doing their job is the real question. So I'm going to take a guess that when you talk about our broken health care system, as you walk and talk your way across the country, you get a lot of people nodding their heads in agreement. Anybody who's had any interaction with the healthcare system and the insurance system knows how broken it is. But when you talk about solutions, when you talk about single payer healthcare, there is, you know, there is a whole, you know, effort to paint this as socialism and to somehow raise the boogie ban of communism and socialism is now, you know, the enemy that we're all supposed to fear. That's where people peel away. They don't but I'm wondering, what are you finding in your conversations? Well, you put your finger on exactly the reaction, but there's some very logical, straightforward answers to it. Number one, people who say that, unfortunately, don't really understand what socialism is and the definition. Socialism is if our government took over the ownership and the management and the hiring and the firing of all the people to run our healthcare system. We're going to we have a capitalistic system and that's going to continue. The only thing that changes is that the payment system gets made much more efficient and you have like a benevolent monopoly uh, that has much more negotiating power on behalf of citizens if we had a government with representatives that were doing their job properly. It doesn't have to be done by government. It can be a quasi-governmental uh, entity like Social Security is. Uh, so it falls away. And the other is that you, if you turn it around, if you have a representative who is saying, I believe that we should be focusing on whatever system is going to give Americans good quality health care for all of us at the least total system-wide cost in a way that is sustainable into the future. If you have representatives that stand up and say, this makes sense, and I believe we should be talking about this because we're not talking about what I'm about these studies right now at all. Uh, are, is that representative a conservative, a liberal, an independent by taking that position or any other moniker you want to put on it, left or right? Or is that representative simply a representative doing their job according to the oath they took in the Constitution? The labels are not helpful in that situation at all. And it shows how we get led astray by the way 
so such a big percentage of our modern media are reporting on our politics. They don't compare the job that they're supposed to do on each issue to the oath they took. Instead, we we detail in great detail the horse race and position between the re- one side and the other side. You've been very critical of the media. What is it you feel that they're falling short on? What should they be doing differently or better? Uh, it's really, it's a change in tone and focus that would help Americans. Compare when you talk about health care, the job that they're supposed to be doing first. Lay it out. What's what's their responsibility under the Constitution? What'd they take the oath to do? It's I mean, if you can think of a better objective than to, on health care to provide good quality health care to all Americans at the least total system-wide cost in a way that's sustainable, lay it out. But it seems to me that is the logical public policy goal. Same thing with our political system. They take an oath to set up a political system that is fair, inclusive, equitable, and competitive. And study after study shows we have anything but that. Are they doing their job? Hell no. And we need to call it out. Because if we don't call it out and the media doesn't call it out, uh, we don't, we inhibit, we prevent Americans from understanding how bad it is. And we routinize the behavior. You know, what you're hearing from the Democrats and the Republicans uh, is all, all there is to it. Well, there's a whole nother dimension. And that's a job that media, public radio, for example, takes and spells out in its vision statement. It's its goal to educate its readers. They it can seems do that there is widespread agreement on the problems and very little agreement on the solutions. Uh, we talk about money in politics and yet efforts to rein it in. You know, I, I recall a 60 Minutes episode on the issue of money in politics, and I took it right down to the level of an individual congressperson and explained that. The typical congressperson has to sign up for 30 hours a week of fundraising, and they That's go right. across the street from the Capitol to a uh, nondescript building where they go into cubicles 30 hours a day. We think we're electing right. somebody to uh, you know, represent us on the issues. They're actually spending nearly a full-time job simply raising money. And you know, the, this American system is an open form of bribery where we accept that special interest groups, wealthy individuals can give, you know, all this money and we come up with more and more clever ways to circumvent the the rules that we put on the year before. And we pretend that this is not influence buying. Obviously we all know that it is. How do you fix that, Rick? Well, that's what I get to talk about. That you've asked why I'm doing this. I I worry about these issues just like you clearly are informed and worry about them. But if I was to just write about them versus with the same starting point, uh, I was to add something like walking across America, I get much more ability to have my views listened to, even though walking across America doesn't have anything to do with increasing my knowledge other than, you know, I do talk with people along the way. Uh, And it gives me a platform. And so let's go back to the money. 
why don't we actually fix the money? And here's a here's one way that would work, even though we're not talking a lot about it. If you take the total amount of money it takes to run a two-year presidential cycle, federal can't fed our federal political system. This is to elect our president, the one-third of our senators, and every representative, the winners, the losers the money for the conventions, the ads, the whole ball of wax. It's $14.4 billion in the last election. Divide that through by the 168 million registered voters, and you get a figure of about $75.50. You know, but it's under $100 per person in America. Right now, we finance our political system not with money from all 168 million people. Two percent of us give something in Vermont, in a rough sense, year to year, and also federally. Back an election or two ago, 40 percent of that entire amount came from, I believe it was uh, 25,000 people in America. 40 percent. It was over $110,000 per person, and it's gone, it's skyrocketed since. Uh, so change the way we finance the system. Take money right out of our taxes and give it back to Americans in the form of, it can be a voucher, a prepaid credit card that's limited, so you can only spend it by giving in small amounts to the candidates that speak to the issues that concern all voters. Uh, and uh, and then change the way we allow people into debates. Make the candidates qualify based on having large numbers of small donations to show that their message resonates, not because they've got the biggest name recognition because they're a Ronald Reagan Hollywood star or they've got the most money and they can fund their own campaign. Uh, make it relate to what we're supposed to be doing, which is having policies that serve citizens. And use that. If you have enough support, then you get the platform to get a bigger audience so they can decide whether they like you or not. We can do that. There's a logical uh, there's a logical objection to it. People are going to say, I don't want my good tax money to go to that bad politician because we're not going to like them all. And there's a very logical answer. Using your money to give back to finance our process, if it changes the way our process works to serve citizens, is a huge return on your investment. Uh, it isn't even close. I can give you one example that allow, if we change one thing that Congress did back with pharmaceutical drugs back in 1987, would allow us to finance the entire political process of the United States three and a half times over. And it and it relates to the money that we pay, the high prices for drugs. Uh, most Americans don't know that back in 1987, it used to we used to have lower prices. And it used when the drugs are sold abroad at much lower prices than we pay in America, 40 cents on the dollar for one of the drugs I'm on, 20 cents in Norway. Uh, it used to be legal for the wholesalers to mark them up a little more. They're making money at those prices over in those countries already. 
but they could mark them up and sell them back across, ship them back across the ocean and sell them at lower prices in America. And that's just normal price competition. Drug companies went to Congress in 1987 and said, we want you to protect Americans from bad drugs. Uh, that normally is handled with an inspection and testing service uh, in most countries. It's cheap in relation to the savings. But if we were to reverse that one law and reallow the price competition that Congress itself cut out uh, on drugs, and they, prices didn't come down 50% or 40%, they only came down 10%. 10% of the $550 billion of drug, you know, total drug sales is $55 billion. $55 billion is three and a half times the entire cost of $14 billion to finance the political system. So we talk about 10 drugs with Biden. And that's a that's nothing compared to going back and reversing what Congress itself did that hurt Americans so badly. We you are walking across a very divided America right now. You're in Colorado. It's a very divided state. It's a state with Lauren Boebert as a representative. In you're in her district now. Right now. And uh, so do you give us an example of where you feel like in the course of your walk, you've had an impact, you've made a difference. Uh, I think that if you, I think that most Americans, regardless of their politics, can understand some of the things we're talking about if they think about them. Well, but I, I mean, politicians I want to take, for don't example, raise those. We, we, we're talking about Lauren Boebert. She is an extreme gun rights advocate. Now, at the 30,000 foot level, we all agree we're against school massacres. But at the street level, you have somebody like Lauren Boebert objecting to and doing her darndest to block any effort at common sense gun control. Yes. How do you bridge those two where people mouth the platitudes, oh, no school massacres, and yet do nothing to prevent them? Okay. Uh, it helps to know that polls show that on the issue, controversial issue of gun control, roughly 60% of all American voters think that, yes, we have a Second Amendment right to have a weapon, but that weapon or that right comes with responsibilities. And I won't lay them out. We all know the kind of responsibilities we should be having if we're going to have a weapon. And if somebody uses their right and weapon to take away other people's rights for the same right that we have, uh, there can be sanctions imposed on people. Uh, yet you cannot get a single Republican senator to stand up for anything that is, is really consistent with the fact that 60% of the people feel that way. And there's a reason. They all have to get through the primary. And out of all 100% of American voters, if you said what percentage are going to actually participate year over year in the Republican primary, and then I'll give you the Democratic figures, it's only about 10%. It bounces around 10% to 15%, but the long-term average is closer to 10%. So you don't get through 
to the general election as a Republican senator unless you please that 10%. And for the Dems, it's 15 to 20%. Right. And that we, we just have 30 seconds left. And I want to okay. come back to your walk. Is there one encounter you've had lately that gives you hope and that keeps you going? Yes. The fact that all Americans both understand that we've got a problem and the system is not serving us. Uh, we go in different directions, but we all understand that. That is a common point. And if you can cut out the labels, the left, the right, you can focus on the job that our electors are supposed to be doing on our behalf, you get agreement, widespread agreement from both sides. We need to, that's where the media comes in. That's where politicians need to do their job and talk about how bad the system is is serving Americans. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Rick Hubbard, good luck as you continue walking across America to fix our democracy. Thanks, David. You can follow Rick Hubbard's journey at fixourdemocracy.us. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.